Alrighty. James chapter 3. If you have your Bibles this morning, James chapter 3. Man, I'm so excited to get to come up here this morning in our brand new room. This is so exciting. It's, it's just amazing to see how the Lord has continued to bless this ministry and see all this just happen this morning. And I'm excited to come up here on the stage this morning and close out, sort of, I'll talk about that in a minute at the end, uh, close out our RAD series this morning. If you have not been with us, we have been going through this series called RAD, where we took the 90s word RAD, which meant cool, and we've taken it to scripture. But in Jesus' time, the word radical, RAD, meant something different. While in the 90s it might have meant cool, in Jesus' time, what it really meant was it meant different. It meant uh, an idea of going against the grain, being different than the culture around you. And so what we have done is we've taken this rad, this word rad, and we've applied it both to 90s context and to Jesus' time to see how we can live radical lives for him. If you haven't been with us, the first week we talked about how radical people um, listen more than they speak. And we too, we talked about how radical people don't play favorites. Last week, we talked about how radical people, um, how they are careful how they use their words. And today, we want to talk about how radical people fight for peace. How radical people fight for peace. And I believe that we can't accurately talk about the idea of fighting for peace unless we understand a very key term, and that is conflict. And so today, we're going to kind of break down conflict, what is it, and see how we can uh, understand conflict to help us fight for peace better. And so we're going to do that in two ways. We're going to look at first the cause for conflict and the cure for conflict. That's your two points for today, the cause for conflict and the cure for conflict. Now, I don't know about you. Growing up, the thing I hated more than anything else was when I would pick up my phone And I would see the text, we need to talk, period. No context, no explanation, nothing. And whether you are guilty or not of something, it sends chills down your spine, doesn't it? We need to talk, period. Whether that could be maybe you left to go hang out with friends before you did the dishes and your parents are like, oh, they're going to get it now. Or maybe you've unknowingly or possibly knowingly done something to betray a friend. And now it's time for that conflict you have with that person to be resolved. We need to talk, period, means there is a conflict that needs to be resolved And as we've been going through this series, we've been connecting everything we talk about to the 90s, right? We've talked about how, you know, the fashion of the 90s. We've talked about TV shows, music, all these different things from the 90s, and today is no different. Today, I would like to introduce you to one more TV show, and it is this, Saved by the Bell. Saved by the Bell was a really great show while it ended before I was even born. Uh, This, along with things like Full House and Fresh Prince, yeah, I know, haha, <laughs> gotcha. Um, they were my favorite shows to wake up early in the morning and watch the reruns. Um, and so in this show, Saved by the Bell, there are two main characters, Zach and Slater. 
Zach and Slater, like I said, the main characters, and there is a, a point in the series where they are fighting over, you guessed it, a girl. <laughs> Clearly you didn't watch the show because this is not what I was going to say. Thank you, Brad. Um, they're fighting over a new girl that has come into town, and they, want, they both want her to go to a dance with them. And so this, this argument, they end up going to a point where they are sabotaging each other's chances with this new girl to the point where they fight in the hallway, get in this brawl, have to go to the office, all this stuff. And maybe for you in the room, you have not actually gotten in a fight in a hallway over a girl or guy, or maybe you have. Either way, we have all been in a conflict of some sort, have we not? We've all been in some form of conflict, and we've all had to deal with it. That's because just like each of these topics, talking, listening, favoritism, and conflict, they are all natural to us. They are ingrained in our living. It's something we, we, we end up fighting for because that's what we enjoy. It's in our flesh. So it comes natural to us. And in this episode of Saved by the Bell, Zach and Slater get to this point at the end where they realize how stupid their conflict was. They end up laughing it out, staying friends. And I think that's us today, is it not, with conflict? We, we come to this point where maybe we realize how ridiculous or petty the thing we were fighting over with someone was, right? And you may even begin to question, why did I fight over this in the first place? We all come to that point. And so today we realize that conflict is, in a, way, in a way, really really silly, really stupid, because it doesn't make sense why we should have conflict with someone. But we're going to break down conflict, like I said, starting um, with the cause for conflict. And so we're going to jump into James chapter 3, go to the end, starting in verse 13, go to the end, and then kind of jump into James chapter 4 as well. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn there. Like I said, if you don't, the word's on the screen behind us so you can keep up with us. Let's begin. James chapter 3, verse 13. Who among you is wise and understanding? By his good conduct, he should show that his words, works are done in the gentleness that comes from wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't boast and deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there is disorder in every evil practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without pretense. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be friends of the world becomes the enemy of God. Or do you think it's without reason that scripture says the spirit he made to dwell in us envies intensely? But he gives greater grace. Therefore he says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Like I mentioned, we're going to break down this passage and take a look at how we can fight for peace in our lives. 
But like I said, we also, in order to fight for peace, have to understand conflict. And so we start with the cause for conflict. What is the cause for conflict? Looking at this passage, we can see maybe the possible cause for conflict is a wrong alignment with wisdom. A wrong alignment of wisdom. What I mean by that? Look at the passage. James gives two different ideas of wisdom. He talks about wisdom from the world, and he talks about wisdom that is from above, from God. So let's break down starting with the wisdom of the world. James begins by telling us that if you have bitter envy in your heart and selfish ambition, that your wisdom does not come from above, but is earthly and spiritual and demonic. Let's look at it this way. James gives us a pattern to follow earthly wisdom. He says, when there is, there you find. When there is envy, there you find disorder. Where there is selfish ambition, there you find evil practice. What James is showing us here is that when you, when there is a negative, you will always find a negative with worldly wisdom. There is no such thing as a negative and then you find a positive. And maybe you might think that, oh, well, I've seen all these stories how these people, you know, they, they cheated their way to the top and now they make all this money and have that awesome beach house. But I promise you, while that might look like a positive, it is a negative in eternity's eyes. It has no eternal significance. Therefore, it has no real positive outcome. Worldly wisdom, as James shows us, is that there will never be a positive as the outcome. On the other hand, when we follow the wisdom that is from above, God, God, from God, we find something completely different, and in turn, we also act differently. Because the wisdom of the world is about personal gain, personal satisfaction, it is, all, it is about how you can get to the top and beat everyone else out. On the opposite end of the spectrum, the wisdom from God is not about you at all. It is not about personal gain, it's about giving up your rights. It is not about personal satisfaction, it is about helping and serving others. It is not about figuring out how you can make it to the top and win, but instead how you can lose your rights and love and serve others. So James gives us a pattern to help us understand this as well. I'm looking at verse 17, he says this, he says, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without pretense. What James shows us here, really how we can kind of break this down is we have the first four things of wisdom can be looked at as as the attitudes of a Christian. And the first he says is pure and peace loving. The believer who exercises this gift of heavenly wisdom possesses a self-controlled temper that expresses peace. By their attitude toward others, they show that they love peace. The peace of God dominates their thinking so that they cannot help but show it towards others. The second attitude of a Christian is gentleness or considerate. I like that word gentle, but another translation in the NIV says considerate. Considerate, what does it mean? When the person is considerate, they live with a heavenly wisdom They are fair and reasonable, gentle in discussion and disagreement. They quietly gather all the facts before making an opinion. They hold back from placing themselves first. 
Thirdly, they are compliant. They understand when it is okay to let others take charge. They are always open to suggestion on how they can better themselves. In other words, they do not live by the idea that it is only my way or the highway. They are willing to hear they are wrong and willing to learn from their mistakes when others point it out. But I'll maybe make it a little tight, a slight observation here that it also is in the same way humbling that they will seek out to others who are around them and say, hey, how can I better myself? How can I live better and more selfless? Following the attitudes of believer, James gives us four more that can be classified as the actions of a Christian and actions of a believer. The first is that they are full of mercy and good fruits. This means the person with heavenly wisdom reaches out to those around them who need help. This person is filled with mercy towards those around them, and they are putting the actions of Jesus into their practice every single day. They remember that God showed them mercy when he didn't have to, and therefore they go and live showing mercy to others, even when they don't have to. The second, or lastly, if you will, the um, second and third is unwavering and without pretense. Again, the NIV says that they are impartial and sincere, meaning they do not take sides in a dispute when they are called to help solve an issue at hand. They listen carefully and make judgments based on the facts the argument has presented. In other words, they don't show favoritism. Remember that word? Favoritism to either party. And then once they've gathered all the facts... They are gentle, they are sincere and loving in their response. Not harsh, but careful when they respond to love that person. Another observation that's important to understand is, like we talked about throughout this series, that James is the half-brother of Jesus. And so he lived around Jesus all of Jesus' life. He knew Jesus, and he also knew his teachings really well. And so a lot in the book of James is a mirror or an echo to what Jesus taught while on earth. And this part right here is no different. See, James says this. James says, pure. And Jesus says, the pure in heart are blessed, for they will see God. This is the Sermon on the Mount. James says, peace-loving. Jesus says, the peacemakers are blessed, for they will be called sons of God. James says, gentle and considerate. They, Jesus says, sorry, uh, Jesus says, um, The gentle are blessed for they will inherit the earth. James says compliant and submissive. Jesus says the poor in spirit are blessed for the kingdom of God is theirs. James says full of mercy. Jesus says the merciful are blessed for they will be shown mercy. And lastly, Jesus says full of good fruit. Jesus says those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be filled. James is essentially giving us a quick recap of the Sermon on the Mount, and he's showing us how we can live it practically in real life to fight for peace and to understand conflict. And now that we kind of have this idea of conflict in our minds, James kind of transitions into that idea of peace, right? And that's what he talks about next. The word peace here that we read at the end of chapter 3, where he says... Um, the fruit of righteousness is sown, or sorry, excuse that. <laughs> the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate that peace. That's what James says. 
the Greek word peace here essentially means what it says, peace, but it also means safe. It means friendly. And in the context, James is saying that righteousness cannot be produced. Righteousness, the right living of a Christian, the right living of a believer cannot be um, produced in a climate of selfish gain. Righteousness can only be produced in a climate of peace by those who cultivate that peace. Self-gain is nowhere to be found when we talk about peace. And James continues into chapter 4. He starts talking, right, about what are the sources of war and fights among you. And he closes on the idea that all fights and wars, all conflicts, come from your personal desires. He says that they come from your passions. And is that not exactly what we just talked about with worldly wisdom? Is worldly wisdom not all about how you can get to the top, how you can get the most out of your life, how you can win, how you can be on top, how you can fight to always be the best? Is that not what worldly wisdom produces in us? James tells us very clearly in verse 3 that when we live this type of life of self-gain and self-glory, that we will end up asking for things and not receiving them from God because we are asking with the wrong motives. We are asking with the wrong motives. And what is that motive? That motive is your pleasures, your desires, your wants, your needs. We're asking with the wrong motives, and therefore we are not receiving. James continues in chapter 4. He's begging you to ask the question, what are your motives when you ask God for something? Are you asking God to get good grades on that test because it will make you look smarter? Are you asking God to help you, you know, hone in that skill to make that shot, to make that block, to make that goal so that others look at you and say, wow, they are really good? Or are you asking God to give you those skills and talents and abilities so that you can in turn say, Lord, this is because of you, so that you can make his name known to those who look and say, man, how do you do it? I don't understand how you're so good. And you turn around and say, it's God. I cannot do it myself. It is God. So what are your motives for asking God for things? James uses this harsh term coming up next, adulterous people. Mm. I'm not sure about you, but I know I never want to be called an adulterous person. But I want to be honest with you. There have been times in my life that I've given my allegiance. I've given my love. I've given my time. I've given my commitment to someone besides God. God has committed himself to me. He said, I will never leave you or forsake you no matter what. And I still continue to turn from him and say, no, I want my worldly pleasures. I want what I want. So don't sit up here and think, man, Josh is just on the stage all high and mighty telling us this is what we should do. No, I'm telling you from the stage right now, I made those mistakes and I want you to learn from my mistakes so that you don't have to live the hard life that I had to live, learn the rough consequences I had to learn. So I'm begging you, don't follow worldly desires and pleasures because it only leads to hurt. It only leads to hardship. It only leads 
to pain. James continues to tell us why we are adulterous people when we do this. And he says it is because we are friends with the world. And he says friends with the world means you are enemies with God. But I want to make sure we understand something about that idea of being enemies with God. I think sometimes we classify enemies of God or friends of the world only to that really, really low, bad people group. The ones that are murderers, the ones that are drug users, the ones that drink alcohol and get drunk, or the ones that lie, the ones that cheat, the ones that use foul language and break others down. But what if I were to tell you, as James tells us here, that to be enemies of God, to be friends with the world, can sometimes come in the simplest means of you putting others down to make yourself on top. You trying to win an argument because you believe you're right. You telling others you're always going to be the best and they will never be. What if I told you that also meant you were friends with the world and in turn enemies to God? Sometimes I think we like to elevate certain sins, right, and say, mm, that is a sinner right there. But me, no, I, I only peaked on that test just a little bit to make sure I got a good grade on it. But at least I didn't go rob that bank, right? We're all guilty of that. And James is being pretty real and harsh here saying, you're enemies of God when you do that. But listen, all this idea about being good and being really good at what you do, asking God for those talents, I'm not saying don't strive to be your best. I'm saying don't strive to be the best. Don't strive to be your best. Strive, don't strive to be the best. James tells us what happens. That turns into pride. And James tells us what God does to the prideful people. He says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. God resists the proud. I don't think we truly know what a hard life is until we find ourselves at the resistance of God and his love and his mercy. So you keep living your life. You keep going for selfish gain. You keep going for personal pleasure. You keep going to be on top. And I promise you, you will find out what a truly hard life looks like when God resists you. But it says that he gives grace to the humble. And that is how we find our cure for conflict. That is our cure for conflict. James says, submit yourself to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your heart, hands, sinners, and purify your hearts. There you go. There's the cure for conflict. Go to God. Don't walk. Don't casually stroll. Don't even skip. Run to God. Run to him today. Don't wait to clean yourself up and present a better you to God. Bring your dirt, bring your shame, bring your sin, bring every hurt you have, bring every betrayal you have, every wrong thing you've done, and put it at his feet and say, God, my life is yours. 
Don't wait to clean yourself up because, listen, I don't want you to miss this. God is not waiting for you to attempt to bring your perfect self to him. He is waiting to perfect you himself. Let me say that again. God does not want your perfect self. He wants to perfect you himself. So that at that moment, in that moment that God gives you all you need to continue this life, you are shedding away, you are breaking away and saying, I can't do this without God. I need him, and without him, I am nothing. Don't wait to clean yourself up. Someone said the church should not be a museum for tourists. It's a hospital for the broken. So bring your brokenness to God because he wants it. Run to him Draw near to him, and he will draw near to you. As we close the day, I just want to make one final observation about that. James says to, you know, when he's saying to run towards God, to go towards God, he also says to flee from the devil. Because I believe you cannot successfully flee from something unless you are fleeing towards something as well. So in the act of fleeing from the devil, you also have to flee towards God so that he can protect you. Because if you don't flee towards God, you will always end back up in your old lifestyle again and again and again and again. And it'll be a repetitive cycle until you come to God. So, two points, two applications for you as we walk away. How do we fight for peace? How do we understand conflict? We gotta know the cause and the cure for conflict. Now that we know conflict, how do we fight for peace? You start by drawing near to God. Draw near to him, James says, and he will draw near to you. At the start of any great thing is your closeness to God. At the start of any great thing in your life is your closeness to God. And secondly, resist your desire to be the best. At the root of all conflict comes your desire to be the best, to be on top, and to always come first. And when we take the posture of Jesus, when we seek the wisdom from above, we will find ourselves continually desiring to not be first, to not be the best, but to love and serve others and let them shine. Give away your spotlight and put it on someone else. Now, as I said, we're at the end of our RAD series. Mike is going to officially close out next week with another short portion of it. But I want to do a little prep, if you will, for next Sunday. And so I'm going to ask everyone to stand up. I'm going to have you do something that is going to make you very uncomfortable and maybe feel a little weird. What I want you to do is because, here's why. I don't believe, or I do believe, that if you can't do what I'm about to ask you to do in front of a room of believers and Christians, you cannot assume you will do it in a room full of people who will fight you on it. So you can't be brave enough to do this, and it's not even that big of a step, I promise. If you can't be brave enough to do it in the room of believers who want to encourage and fight alongside you, you will never be able to do it in a room full of people who will fight you against it. So I'm going to ask you to do, as we close out this morning, take your hands and put them out in front of you, open.
And this is simply an act of you saying, God, I am releasing control of my life to you. You are saying with open hands, with open arms, I'm as you saying, God, with open hands, I come to let go of what I hold on to and to receive whatever you have for me. And so close your eyes, take 30 seconds-ish. And today I want you to take a short moment for God and ask him, which area of radical living does he need to work on in you? Is it listening more than you speak? Is it favoritism? Is it harsh words? Or is it conflict, fighting for peace, always trying to be on top? What area do you need to live more radically for him and with open hands receive what he has for you? And so, Lord, we come before you this morning. We come before you not proud but humbled, Lord, for who you are. God, do a mighty work in us for your glory, for your kingdom. Lord, let us let go of what we are holding on to to be ready to receive what you have for us, Lord. Let us proclaim holy surrender to you, arms out, hands open, running towards you, Lord. Let us receive what you have to live more radically for you today, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Peace, students. You are loved. You are seen. You are known. You are valued. You are dismissed to the next service. Thank you.